let me say welcome to Socrates in the City, Oxford edition. That, that, uh, thank you. Thank you. I didn't know that, uh, that the English were capable of such enthusiasm. I thank you for surprising me. Uh, this is really such a joy for me to be here. Uh, many of you are familiar with Socrates in the City. You know that we've done them uh, throughout the United States, mostly in New York City. Never here in merry old England. Uh, it struck me that most of the people that I wanted to interview, but that's an exaggeration, many of the people I wanted to interview were here in Oxford. And I thought if we did it here, uh, it would be very easy. We could just sort of set up and do a number of these. Um, but I'll tell you a secret. We, we would not have done any of these. We're doing eight sessions. Uh, we wouldn't have done any of them uh, if this morning's guest, Mr. Walter Hooper, had declined. Because as far as I was concerned, this was, this was the most important one. This was the one that I wanted most to do. And I'll tell you why. Uh, and, and this explains really why I'm so excited. This is a dream come true for me, actually. Because it struck me a number of years ago that there were several people out there whom uh, no one had invited to do a TV chat show kind of thing. They, they hadn't been able to uh, tell their stories in that format. So there are audio tapes here and there and different things, and there are interviews you can read. But I thought, can it be possible that Walter Hooper, of all people, has not been sat down uh, to have a, a proper conversation about his life and the gigantic influence he has had? I mean, it's actually more than gigantic. It's dispositive would be a good William F. Buckley word um, on the legacy of C.S. Lewis. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And so I think the side of me that's annoyed by injustice says, Somebody, somebody's got to do this. This is absurd. Maybe I could do it. What a thrill that would be. What a dream it would be. And so it's a, been a long time uh, in coming. Uh, I first had this ambition, uh, I remember distinctly, uh, I guess it was the second trimester of my mother's pregnancy with me in 1963, <laughs> uh, early 63. I knew that I wanted to do this. Um, but I really have wanted to do this for a long time, so I, I can't believe that we're here, that uh, Mr. Hooper has uh, consented. It's just a thrill for me that we're finally going to do this, and it's particularly thrilling that you've given me uh, this much time. Because I, I, as I spoke with uh, uh, Walter Hooper last year, I realized there are so many stories. It's not like a typical Socrates event where you can sort of do it and you're done. It's about a book or something like that. It's about the lifetime of C.S. Lewis. It's about his entire oeuvre, his body of work, and about how Walter Hooper has magnificently uh, and utterly uniquely played a role in bringing C.S. Lewis to the world. So someone who's a devotee uh, and lover of C.S. Lewis uh, and his works, uh, I couldn't be happier. So, um, so in just a moment, uh, I'll a little bit more properly introduce Mr. Walter Hooper. Before we go on, we've got a number of sponsors who've made this possible. I want to thank them. Uh, my friend uh, Barbara Bryant uh, of uh, St. Louis, uh, our friends Laura and David Thayer of Philadelphia, Lisa and Kenny Trout of Dallas, uh, Sharon Vanderpaul of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and our dear friends Susie and Jerry Wilson also of Dallas. Without them, this wouldn't be possible. I also want to thank the NRB Network and Jerry Johnson, who is here for making this possible. We are going to air all of these on the NRB Network, really, really uh, excited. If you're watching on the NRB Network, hi. And uh, I want, uh, last but not even close to least, 
uh, my chief of staff and friend, Alyssa Labaris, who's sitting here in the front row, who has done so much work that I try not to think about it because it would just embarrass me that anybody uh, working with me would do this much work. But this has, been, this has been months in the making. So Alyssa, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Um, and uh, where are the flowers? No. Uh, you, you can take those. Uh, we really, uh, we, we all know that this has been, uh, it's been a long time in coming. So this is a great, great treat for me. So just a few words. There's really not much to say about Walter Hooper because it all sounds insignificant compared to what it is that I think makes him uh, significant, but the sort of the little factoids are that he's an author, of course, and a trustee of the literary estate of C.S. Lewis. Um, these are some important facts. He was born in Reedsville, North Carolina in 1931, served in the U.S. Army for two years, uh, earned his master's in education in 1958, and taught English at the University of Kentucky uh, in the early 1960s. After he'd corresponded with C.S. Lewis for a number of years, starting with uh, his time in the Army, uh, he was able to visit C.S. Lewis in England, where the great C.S. Lewis, the legend, uh, asked Walter Hooper to stay with him at the kilns, at his home, as secretary. Uh, so following Lewis's death, which actually was just a few months later, um, Walter Hooper worked with Lewis's dear friend, fellow inkling Owen Barfield, uh, really to organize and preserve Lewis's rather vast uh, works. So many uh, essays and writings and, of course, letters. We can talk about that as well. Um, uh, he became friends with a number of the inklings, most of whom were, were, were living at that time, including uh, Tolkien, Charles Williams, and, of course, Owen Barfield. Mr. Hooper was ordained as an Anglican priest and was the chaplain, in fact, of two Oxford colleges and served as assistant rector of the Church of St. Mary Magdalen in Oxford. Walter Hooper converted to Catholicism in 1988. Uh, we have so much to talk about, so I'd better shut up and just say please uh, give a warm Socrates in the City Oxford edition welcome uh, to Mr. Walter Hooper. Well, probably the best thing I can say is I have no idea where to start. So uh, in lieu of a bright idea, I'll start at the beginning. Uh, if you would, uh, tell us your story and how it is that you came to meet Lewis and to work with him. I was in the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in 1953, before any of you were born. Anyway, at that time, it's not generally known now, but the Korean crisis was going on. You know, America had not quite pulled out of Korea. And um, so all the young men were being drafted. And I was begging my draft board to give me just a few more months, a few more months. And during those last few months... Um, someone introduced me to a book called Letters to um, Young Churches by J.B. Phillips, which had an introduction by Lewis. It was the introduction which absolutely 
uh, changed my life. I've never heard such a voice of faith in my life. And I kept saying to other people, this man really believes. And they said, but all the believers believe. And I said, no, this is different. And I've been thinking about that since all those years. And I think what I would say, it was different because Lewis believed with the confidence, I think, that you would find in St. Peter and St. Paul. He, he would have tested everything against this. He knew it in a way that we just don't know things today. Anyway, I was going in, into the army, straight into the army, and I thought, if only I could get a book by Lewis. Unfortunately, the, the Chapel Hill didn't have his books in stock at that time. But anyway, in Greensboro, there were two elderly women, the strong sisters, who liked to put the book, a right book, in the right hands. So they got up, produced a copy of Miracles. Anyway, this was basic training, and you don't have um, oh, places you can store things, you know. So I kept it inside my shirt, this hardback book. And so during calisthenics and all of that, it was jumping up and down with me. But so far, none of the sergeants discovered that. Even, you know, climbing under barbed wire. But I can st the book made such a huge impression on me that every 10 minutes there would be a, a cigarette break, you know. Um, so you could stop that and then assemble you again and, you know, after 10 minutes. But I used those 10 minutes sitting under a pine tree. I think I could recognize the pine tree I was sitting under when I read that wonderful book. A wonderful book. It really just changed my life. I've read it many times since then. And I knew I had made a huge discovery, you know, larger than anything I would have expected to happen in my whole life. You, you were really at that point, it seems to me, before you got the Miracles book, looking for anything by Lewis, or were you specifically looking for miracles? Oh, no, anything. Anything. Yeah, no, 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 you, no, you read no, this no, introduction no, 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 in the J.B. Phillips translation, yeah, yeah. and by the way, Lewis was a real encouragement to Phillips yeah, in yeah, writing yeah, that mm -hmm. great translation. Yeah, were yeah. you aware at that point of who Lewis was and of his other works? Or, or were you uh, just waiting for these sisters uh, in the Greensboro bookstore to, to get you something by Lewis? What, what did you know about Lewis at that point? I knew almost nothing except that the, um, the captain of the football team at the University of North Carolina, he had mentioned the screw tape letters but I didn't see it at that Okay, time. so that, that was out in 53, the, the screw tape letters. It came out in 1942. Oh. And, um, but, I mean, uh, this was 53 that I'm talking about. Okay. But, no, I didn't know what didn't other know. books so were. So you, you just rather randomly were. received this copy of Miracles, yeah. because I'm thinking of all the books of Lewis that I have loved. Yeah. That's one that I didn't love. I mean, it's, I, yeah, I guess yeah. I find it rather difficult reading. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, when you're in basic training, I guess you'll take what you can get. And it is, it is of course, great, but it, it take, takes more effort than some of his, his other books. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I was happy to take that effort. I remember um, one of the sergeants saw me reading that, 
And he says, soldier, you better really ought to be reading a work on Korean, <laughs> learning Korean. But one of the things I'm really glad about, unlike you, so you can go to a bookshop like Blackwell's or maybe even here, and you can save there the Chronicles of Narnia and their theological works like Christianity and so on. And then there's his literary criticism. I didn't know about these different categories. And I'm glad I didn't because he didn't, he didn't like being known as several authors, but as one author of many different types. So the, the books came to me in a very higgledy-piggledy order. I think one of the first ones was, in fact, um, um, the Arthurian Torso, which was... Um, a work of, by Charles Williams with a commentary on uh, his poems by C.S. Lewis. Which one was that? Arthurian? Arthurian Torso. Torso. 1947. <laughs> and then came uh, English literature in the 16th century, yeah. which I loved. And then came Scrooge Bladders, and then uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which hadn't long been out. So they came, you know, I liked but I could hear the voice of C.S. Lewis in each of those, you know. The same, you know, siren voice that had reached me from miracles. In his reply to me, and I didn't expect a reply, um, he said, even at our sins we should look no longer than to know and repent them, for they're not a proper object of contemplation. When a man comes under the divine meridian... He loses his consciousness of self and in the end becomes a creature which fills other people's lives while they in turn help fill our lives. But how far from this one is at present? He entered so deeply into other people's lives that for a while I wondered before I met him, is there any C.S. Lewis left? if he's so spread out in other people's lives and other people are so influential to him. Well, I was to find that out later. That's extraordinary what you're telling us, that he takes the trouble not just to reply, but to reply sensitively and in some depth. (laughs) That's that's um, hard to believe. Well, as I later discovered, he, he believed that if you write a book, uh, you can write, anybody can write a book if they want to, but if you publish a book and people, you sell it and people buy it, you have responsibility to those people who write to you. You didn't have to do that. You, in one way, ask for that, and you offer being paid for it as well. So you must reply to people. He took them seriously. Anyway, he replied by... Uh, writing in ink with his hand. And he replied by return of post, which in this country means the same, you write the same day you get the other person's letter. So he wrote enormous numbers of letters. But, but I mean, when you look at the quality of the letters, you realize he, he really did answer what I had said to him. Anyway, I liked him even more I'm, as, a, as a man, and 
from that time on, after reading six or seven of his books and waiting to read them, it made the army one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. I hated to leave. You know, when my two years, four days, and one breakfast were concluded. <laughs> anyway, I ended up shortly after that uh, teaching in the University of Kentucky. And I had a chance to write a book about Lewis for the Twain's English author series. So I wrote to him about that. I, he, we'd already exchanged a good many letters. And he said, it's far better to, answer, to write about the unanswering dead because they can't blow the gaff on all the mistakes you make. But if you insist, you know, go ahead and write it. But uh, if you'd like to, or I'll see you if you in, if come to Oxford. So I went to Oxford. What, what year was this? 1963. 63. And um, I had an appointment with him at the Kilns, his house about four and a half miles away, on Monday, the 10th of June, 1963. And I'd only just got here. I had not any idea that in English homes, they, at that time at least, the bathroom and the lavatory were separate rooms. Anyway, I went out on Friday as a friend told me, so you should find out where he lives. It'd be a pity if, you know, you miss seeing him on Monday because you simply couldn't find the house. Well, nobody in the street knew where he lived. So finally somebody said his housekeeper lives in number 11, Kill Lane. So she told me, the housekeeper, how to get to it. And she said, he's there now. At four o'clock, he would be having tea. So go on up. So I did. And I rang the doorbell. And then, I don't know whether you've had these experiences, but they happened to me pretty often. I suddenly saw myself for what I was. Um, ignorant beside him. And a Tar Heel, North Carolina, what was I doing bothering this man? <laughs> and um, I just wish there had been um, a hole big enough to just hold me and drop me into it. I really wanted to flee. Even though he invited you? Even though he'd invited me. But um, I assumed this would be just the one chance I would have to see him, the one chance. So I really, when he invited me in, well, I thought, this, this is what I've wanted for years and years, you know. And um, he could not have been nicer. Uh, the talk was exciting because everything was a kind of disputation with him because you were always talking towards truth. For instance, I remember during the conversation we had, he made a very important distinction, as he does in his books, I asked him, which of your books do you think best? And he said, I think uh, Perilandra is best. And then he asked me, which of my books do you like the most? And feeling that we've talked about the same thing, I said, well, I agree with you. I agree with you, Perilandra is best. He said, no, I ask, you ask me which is best. I'm asking you which you like the most. And I said, the one I like more than any book in the entire world is that hideous strength. He said, so do I. 
But don't you see, they're different. You know, you might find one thing far better than another, but you might really like something else better. It's like, it was, I guess it was like sitting with uh, the old knock. Yeah, I think so. Right? Yeah, and, uh, and you have to yeah, explain yeah, that that was no, Lewis's tutor. Uh, I can't remember when he was, what, 15 years old? Yep, this. Mm-hmm. And he was always um, in one way saying, why do you say that? Do you have really, do you even know what you're talking about? In other words, even the difference, mm-hmm. the distinction between what do you think is my best book yep, and which book do you like yep, the best yep. are two different questions. Yeah, they are. Uh, that's a fact, but you wouldn't, most people wouldn't make that distinction, but when you're sitting with C.S. Lewis, he did make it. So here you are with him for the first time, uh, and he's having a wonderful conversation with you, but it's interesting that he doesn't relax that uh, way he has of forcing uh, his interlocutor, I guess, to think hard. So you say that hideous strength, and then strangely enough, he says... That's also the book that he likes best. From the moment I got there, he brought in a pot of tea. And I love tea very, very much. Uh, not coffee, but tea. And he was a gargantuan tea drinker. After we finished one pot, he went into the kitchen and brought back a second pot. And then a third pot by this time... I must have had 12 (laughs) cups. 12 cups of tea. I was very uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, Like most um, Americans, I didn't know that they had two different rooms, you know, the bathroom and the lavatory. So I said, Professor Lewis, do you think I could use the bathroom? He said, certainly. So he took me to what was just the bathroom. It had a bathtub in it. And he took out about four towels and put them there on beside the bath. Took four tablets of soap and put them beside the Four tablets of soap. He's having a little fun with the Tar Heel. So uh, then he closed the door. He said, do you think you have enough for bath? And I, I said, I'm sure I will. And so he closed the door. So... What he closed the door, do? and you, you didn't object. You just... Uh, oh, I, I had a very anxious about two or three minutes wondering what to do in the bathroom. Don't you wish that you had taken a bath? <laughs> well, um, I was too um, uncomfortable for that. So I went back into the common room where he was, and I said, Professor Lewis, actually, it wasn't a bath I wanted. And he said, he was laughing, he said, that will cure you of those American euphemisms. Now, let's start over again. Where do you want to go? (laughs) Now, if if we're going to play that game 50, uh, 50 years later, 52 years later, I want to throw it right back at Lewis, but I'll throw it back at you. Lavatory, obviously, the etymology of that has nothing to do with flushing a toilet. I know, I know. So therefore, isn't that equally wrong and an equally bad British euphemism for toilet? I I thought so, but I wouldn't dare say it to him. Oh, you... (laughs) Okay. Um, So so he was a jokester. Well, he, he it broke. Well, I mean, he was a man who knew language and who was interested in language. And he, he told me that right before that, an American 
beautiful American girl of long blonde hair had been entertained by these two elderly ladies who were his neighbors. And they, ex they commented on her beautiful blonde hair. How do you make it so beautiful, they asked. They were in their 90s. And she said, I wash, them, I wash my hair every day in the lavatory. <laughs> uh, well, they said to her, uh, him, we never want her back again. Oh. This is the rudest girl we've ever met. <laughs> so he was already primed to but think of the results she was getting. You know? uh, wow. Okay. Okay. Well, the... Um, Find about two hours after that, um, it was time for me to go, and he took me to the um, to the bus stop, which was also where the Ampleforth Arms, that his pub, local pub, oh by was. the pub. Yeah. So we went in, and we had a um, uh, a pint of beer together, and then the bus came, and my heart was breaking. I remember on the in the short journey to the bus stop, regretting that I'd even met him because I liked him so much. I remember thinking, I really love this man. And I thought this was it, you know. And um, I thought this might have been better never to have met him than to taste that wonderful personality and then give it up forever. Anyway, so I was getting on the bus. I said, well, thank you very much, Professor Lewis. It's been very nice meeting you. He said, you're not getting away. Oh, no, you're not getting away. You're coming to the inking meeting on Monday. Well, uh, the inklings were at that time meeting just on, the, on Mondays uh, because Lewis was, had been gone once he went to Cambridge they had to change that because he went to Cambridge on Monday afternoon. So it had been on Tuesday for many years, but it changed. So this is at, uh, at lunch? Oh, well, they started at about 11 o'clock drinking beer. I'm, I'm surprised, mm. drinking beer. I'm surprised that the Inklings were meeting as late as 1963. I hadn't realized that it went on so oh, they long. they continued throughout the rest of his life, didn't it? Oh, no, they, he, he loved the inkling meetings, you know. And they were meeting at that time. They had been for the last several years in the Lamb and Flag, which is across from the bird and the baby. Uh -huh. And uh, there were eight. What eight happened them. to make them quit the bird and baby? Well, see, in the old days, the, the rabbit room, which yeah. they met in, was part of the publican's own... Um, Territory that was their sitting room. It didn't. It wasn't part of the pub. It was part of where the publican lived. So the, he, the keeper of so the pub was called the publican. That's right. That's what they call him. You know? <laughs> no, that sounds. But anyway, they they still are. I know they're sinners, and, um, but but anyway, the the publican uh, Charles Blagrove, who had in, let's said to them. Have this room. You can meet him there. Okay, so no one else was allowed to go in there. This was a, they had a, a, the, the rabbit room where we can walk through well, now. So no, nobody else would have gone in there because it was a private room. It was a private room. Okay. So anyway, but 
he had died, and the new people, who other publicans, had opened it up to everybody. Oh. So they would, wouldn't have had it privately, and they might not have been able to get in at all. So they were just having in the in, in the open room part of the pub of the lamb and playing. But it was all right. I mean, they they liked that too. There were eight people there, I remember, and one of those who was an occasional visitor was Lewis's friend, Roger Lancelin Green, who had a lot to do with the Narnian stories, and whose books I had read and liked very much. And in his um, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, he had made a great deal of the spiritual kingdom of uh, Logress, it's called, in, in, um, in, authors, in his Arthurian book. And I mentioned that Logress, the spiritual kingdom, which Lewis mentions in That Idiot's Strength. Anyway, Lewis picked up what I said, and then it, it went like a ball, you know, around the room, and other people talked about it. He then asked me more questions, and I answered, he was a very easy man to talk with in these groups. He brought you out. Instead of making you feel small or ignorant or anything, he brought you out. He really, he was like God, I think, in that way. He wanted you to shine. He really wanted the best of you to shine forth. You know? The curious thing was, he didn't do much talking himself, but he made good talk possible. This, I've never seen anybody who could bring you out more and make you shine. When I left that meeting, I thought, Walter Hooper, you are beginning to get intelligent. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, Who else was in that room? Was Tolkien there at that time? No, his son, oh, Christopher, was there. His son was oh, there. No. I'm oh, trying to think who else. No. Owen Barfield, was he there? No, he wasn't. You know? And, um, but John Walsh, the um, mm -hmm. uh, historian, was there. Um, and um, various other members, you know, of the, really of the university, like Colin Hardy, was always there. Um, Dr. Havard was there, his doctor, and several others. Um, but it was a very l lovely group. But Lewis made it possible, it made it work, you know. Anyway, then I thought, I'm back to my old worries again. I won't see him anymore. This is it. <laughs> I've had him at least, at least two times. So I thought, well, I should be very grateful. Anyway, we stepped outside, and um, he leant down to give some money to this beggar who was sitting on the, car, the curb uh, and I, I'm ashamed that I said it, but I said the usual thing. I said to Lewis, aren't you afraid that this man will spend that money on drink? And he said, well, if I kept it, I would. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then after that, I started on my, well, thank you very much. He said, he said you're not getting away. You're not getting away. You're coming back to the kills on Wednesday. And so... And how did he know... How long were you planning to be in Oxford at oh, that time? Oh, a number of months. Oh, you're... Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So um, he said, you're coming on Wednesday. And so Wednesday was a lovely um, day. We, we, I asked him what he did, for instance, that day, what he did with his manuscripts. And he said, well, I, um, he was always short of paper, and paper was valuable, he said, because of the war. And um, he said, when I write a book, say, like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I turn it over, then I write another book on the back of that. And then he said, and then I throw it away. <laughs> well, what can I say? Stop. <laughs> um, but I think he knew that I really did appreciate his writings and was sorry that he did that. But I didn't ask say anything. Anyway, he, then he said, but you're not leaving because you're coming back on Sunday because we're going to church together and you're having breakfast here. And you have what there? Breakfast. He loved cooking breakfast himself. Now, what do you think was behind this? Did he have a specific reason, or he just said, no, you you know, you must come back? What what do you suppose was going on? Well, I think he knew I liked him very much. And um, I had come a long way. And he knew you were working on this book. Uh, Yes, he did. Okay. That that was very little was said about that. Um, He may have liked me. Um, I, I mean, this is an awful thing to say, and I, I apologize. I think of him as just being very good to me. You know? But anyway, uh, it was not very long after that we got into the habit of the, the three meetings a week. And then in early July, I went out one Sunday to find him. He was in his ice coat, and he was trying to write a letter to the American lady, as she's been called. The letters to her were published as American lady, Mrs. Shelburne. Anyway, who was a complaining person. Anyway, he could hardly push the pen across the paper. And um, he was going into the hospital. I didn't realize that he had uh, problems. He had uh, an infected kidney and an infected prostate gland but they were, he was too weak, his heart was too weak for an operation. Otherwise, it'd be very simple, and they would be, I think, in America now. But uh, because they are feared to operate because of his heart, he was put on a low-protein diet, and occasionally, about once a month, he went into the hospital for blood transfusion. Wow. But he looked so well, you would have never guessed anything was wrong. Anyway, besides this, you know, this problem, there is the problem of writing. Uh, He said, I'm getting rheumatism in my hand, and said, usually I have my brother to help me who drives the typewriter. Drives the typewriter. Drives the typewriter, as they expressed it. So um, he said, but he's an alcoholic. He was at that point in Ireland in Drada, where he'd been going since 1947, and he'd been away already for about six months. And so Lewis said, the thing is that I really need a secretary. Would you stop and, and, and live here with me and give up your job? And I said, yes. <laughs> and um, anyway, he went into the hospital the next day, 
And then uh, I had become friends with Austin Farah and his wife, the warden of Keeble. And um, I was with them when we heard that Lewis had had a heart attack and probably was dying. Anyway, after three days, we were still waiting by the telephone to hear he had died. But they rang to say, Professor Lewis has come out of his coma and is asking for his tea. <laughs> so we hurried around to, to the hospital. What, do you remember what month home. this was? This was in July. July. Austin Farris said, you know, you, you had us worried, Jack. You know? He said, no, I don't think it can be said I was a very well man. But he said, um, Walter, I want you to arrive tomorrow morning early with pen and paper because we've got to get on with those letters. It was, the letters were stacking up. So for the next two weeks, I went by and we worked all day. But one of the things I learned as beginning his work as his secretary was I had a lot of correspondence with his lawyer, Owen Barfield, whom you mentioned. Owen Barfield was very valuable to him in many, many ways. But in 1941, as Barfield explained to me, Lewis, that was the year of the screw tape letters. They were, they were published separately in a magazine, church magazine, one at a time. And it was also 1941 that he gave the first series of mere Christianity broadcast. But rather than receive any of the money, Lewis sent both the BBC and the people who were publishing the screw tape letters a list of widows and orphans. Think of St. James's epistle. Widows and orphans, each of the fees were to be sent to a widow or an orphan. And at the end of the year, Lewis had to pay tax on all that money he'd given away. And he was really in a quandary. So he turned to Owen Barfield. And out of that debacle, what they did together was to set up um, a charitable organization called the Agape Fund, into which two-thirds of Lewis's total income went to be given anonymously to people in need, like widows and orphans. I couldn't believe that he put so much into it. When I thought about how poor the house was, when the housekeeper came there in 1952, she told me she still found the blackout curtains still up on the windows. <laughs> because, you know, you don't want the Germans to see a light on. So you put blackout curtains, just this heavy black material. 1952. 52. So what, what was a, over. <laughs> a couple of bachelors living there, too lazy to no, pull no. down the... That's ama well, it's amazing. Well, no, he said, you know, but why spend money on warm curtains, he said. He just didn't want to waste money on himself. She said, well, do you mind if I wash these blackout curtains? She said, he said, go ahead. Well, she put them in soap and water, and they melted. <laughs> they turned into ink. And, you know, and he, she poured them out. They so, were probably so full of smoke <laughs> that they were carcinogenic <laughs> curtains. Well, he, he, there was one ashtray in the house. Everybody smoked. When I first arrived there, with, I come from the tobacco town, and I, I gave him a, uh, 
a carton of Lucky Strikes, which are <laughs> good cigarettes, but strong. And then I thought, maybe he would like something with filters on them, done a, 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 case, a pack of those, you know, a carton of uh, filtered cigarettes. He looked at those and he said, you know, my brother and I don't smoke cigarettes with contraceptives on them. <laughs> so I gave them away to his housekeeper. Anyway, when I thought, one ashtray. But I asked, I said, there's one ashtray. Can I get more ashtrays? He said, he always just flicked the ashes on the carpet. He said, you see, ashes are good for rugs. But yeah. only, only men, men believe, believe it. it only right? men believe it. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I said to him, and really seriously, but Jack, why give away so much? And he took it really seriously, and he said, well, I thought God was so good in having me that the least I could do was to give part of back what I made in his service. And I thought, with shame, when was the last time I thought how good God is in having me. But he really had the, the temperament of a child Christian in a way. Mm. So gracious, so grateful that God would have him. You know? But that was part of that faith that he had. Anyway, when he came home, um, I thought this is going to be really difficult um, because... I can't keep up the level of this wonderful conversation that he's good at all the time. But he didn't want to talk all the time either. And I discovered something, it may strike you as unusual, simple, but he liked, and I'm sure this, he did this with warning, he liked to sit quietly reading his book with another person. So he would say, as he picked up his book, Walter, didn't you bring your book? So he liked to just sit with somebody, not alone, but with somebody. And then if you had something to contribute, you, he might talk for a while and then go back to the book. Anyway, I found it extremely relaxing. I loved being there with him. But I, there were occasional mysteries like when I gave him a cup of coffee after lunch, I left him alone. I felt he needs to be alone now. So I closed the door and I wondered, does he take a nap? But I, I tried to look through the keyhole. And <laughs> anyway, I couldn't find out. So finally, one day, I just said, Jack, I have to know this. Do you ever take a nap when I leave the room? Oh, no, oh, no, he said, oh, no. You see, but sometimes a nap takes me. <laughs> and I think that is the nature of naps. You could get in your pajamas and get in bed in, at one o'clock or something, but you'll, you won't go to sleep. Right. Naps have to do the taking. Right. <laughs> and, um, but he, um, he was wonderfully cheerful, um, he had heard me say over and over and over again, as C.S. Lewis has said, oh, but you are C.S. Lewis, aren't you? So he would stop this. As C.S. Lewis has said, I would like a pot of tea. <laughs> as C.S. Lewis has said, you will make it. 
C.S. Lewis has said, I will drink it. You know. But then one day, the serious things that happened to him, I found him really worried about his brother. This brings up something, a very important conversation that changed, I think, my life permanently. I didn't know it at the time. But in one way, this is the occasion, the only time, where I won an argument with him. Um, but anyway, he was very worried about what would happen to his brother when he himself died. Now, his brother was uh, significantly older than he was, or at least a few years. He, he was four years old. Four years old. But he was an alcoholic, and, you know, he just let money just waste away. He didn't have enough to live on himself, I think, not from his pension. Um, so Lewis was worried about what, what he would live on when he himself died. I said, it's simple. He will live on your royalties. Yeah. And he said, but what you don't understand is that after an author dies, after about three years after he dies, his books trail off to nothing, and this will happen. And I said, but it won't happen to your books. And he said, well, sometime an author has a resurrection like Sir Walter Scott was having then. But he said, this is very, very rare. Mine will stop. And I said, actually, they won't stop. And he said, what is it about this young secretary who knows things that I don't know? Why won't they stop? And I said, because your books are so good and your readers are not that stupid. <laughs> I'm not sure he believed it, but I believed it. When you said to him, your books won't uh, disappear, no, no, no. and you insisted, uh, I feel like you sort of cheated because a large part of the reason his books did not disappear as he thought they would is absolutely and only because of your efforts. That's an historical fact, so don't no. argue with me. <laughs> no. But, well, no, but I, the I, fact I, is no. that as good as his books are, I'm aware, and I hope you'll tell us uh, today and in the next two days uh, what your role was, the role that you played in helping his work to live on past him, because it, it really ends up being a huge effort. Uh, so, so you cheated when you said, yes, they will, because you, you made sure that they did. But we don't know what would have happened if you were taken out of the equation. Well, I couldn't believe that they would stop. But then, when he died, and I went to Blackwell's and saw huge quantities of his books remained, then I began to feel he could have been right. But I still want to stop this. Yeah. Can you tell us about his death? Because you were, you were not well, here at that time. No, you had gone I wasn't back here. To... He teased me. He said um, he saw me, this little notebook coming out and scribbling things in it. He said, you know, the, law, the divine joke on you is going to be, I will die and you won't be here to take down my lost immortal words. And I said, in that case, I'll leave a notebook. You write them down. <laughs> so anyway, then I left, but we exchanged many letters about you know, what we're going to do when I get back. And so I retired 
you know, from my, my job and was waiting to come back in, in, in January when he died. The same hour that President Kennedy. I knew it was the same day, yeah. November 22nd, 1963, but I never knew it was the same hour. Yeah. Well, one of the people who acted very quickly at that time was Austin Farrow, again, who wrote to me and said, please come back, please come back. I feel there's a work for you waiting here. You, you're needed. So I did go back, and I lived with them for several months in Wheaton, uh, I mean, uh, um, Keeble College. With, with the Austin Fair. Yeah, and then this was the time when I met Warney. Oh, you hadn't met him at and all. He was, no, in, he was no, in Ireland he, all he that time. Now, I don't quite understand. He would go to Ireland just to go to Ireland? Because when, when, uh-huh. when Lewis said to you that he was an alcoholic, I wasn't aware if there was some... Uh, connection with Ireland? Would he just go off on a drunk uh, to Ireland, or well, would he? As he I, reveals in his own biography of Brothers and Friends, in 1947 he went to Drogheda, and um, that's near Dublin, and um, he was to meet a fellow friend there. But anyway, the friend didn't show up, and he got got very very drunk and ended up in the hospital. And one of the first people to see he saw when he opened his eyes was Mother Mary Martin, the founder of the Medical Missionaries of Mary, who built that huge uh, that hospital, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. So uh, she nursed him back to health with, with the doctors. Um, so uh, she then sent for C.S. Lewis to come over there, and he went over there very worried about his brother. This is 1947. But Warney wouldn't come home with him. He wanted to stay in this inn, uh, the White Horse, and he had found a little Anglican church there, which he went to, and so it became his home away from home. And the nuns allowed him to go out all day and drink and yet come home at night to the hospital. And he had a, nice a, a life very if you can close get it. friend, uh, Major Henry, another alcoholic, another major, who had a car. And they would just go around all day long, you know, from pub to pub, little village to village. So uh, he got used to that life. He liked it. And so this is where he was when I was with Lewis. But now, anyway, was the was, connection to Ireland, I just have to ask, because they had grown up in Ireland, yeah, yeah. Was, was that Warney's connection, that he had friends from childhood? Well, or? Well, no, it's just that he loved Ireland. Okay. Uh, things are much more relaxed they were at that time in Ireland than they were in England. I mean, you couldn't very well go to a hospital in, in Oxford... And, and, you know, and drink all day and then go home and enter the hospital and sleep in the beds, you know. Uh, but they allowed it. And anyway, he came back for, to look after his brother, though, in November, yeah. right before his brother died. So they had a few weeks together. Anyway, oh, Warney came back to take care of... Yeah, yeah. But then Warning uh, was getting ready when I met him to go back to Ireland. But anyway, he had decided that he was a broke man. He didn't have enough money. 
And so he was moving out of the kills, which could have been his for the rest of his life, but he thought the taxes would be so much, so he had bought a small house close by, and he was getting rid of, rid of everything. Anyway, he gave me a lot of his, uh, Lewis's notebooks and papers, and he invited me to start editing Lewis's writings. So this was what made it possible for me to do what I've done for the last 50 years. This idea that now you come back and you are deputized with this job of dealing with the works of Lewis, that there's no one else overseeing this. And sometimes I think with famous people, we assume someone's taking care of that. Some, there's somebody to take care of that. But the idea that there was no one, the idea that his brother is so worried that he can't... I mean, what a strange irony that he's making so much money in royalties, he's giving it all away, and now his brother is worried that he can't stay in the kilns and that he's got to move out and... Well, they, they both men tended to panic. I think this was in the nature of their family. But it wasn't really up to him. I mean, he had... He was the beneficiary of Lewis's will, but it was really up to two other people, Lewis's executors, to decide who did what. And they were Owen Barfield and Cecil Harwood. And the, at that time, you know, because books were of copyright for 50 years after the author's death, they didn't think they could live for 50 years, but they thought I could. But they saw my interest. And they had things, their lives were very complex and, and busy. They were writing their own books. And they didn't want to spend all their time with their friends' books. So they were happy to see this young American, you know, who could do all this legwork and who was interested. And what needed to be done, just so we understand? I mean, he dies... Uh, I, it's difficult for us to imagine what, what, what was necessary. He'd written all of his books, obviously. What was... Well, I had heard um, from one of the publishers that one of the best ways to sell a new book is to bring back old books that, of the same author. Well, Lewis was working on a volume of, uh, of his own poems when he died. And so I felt as a tribute to him, I should finish the book that he wanted to put into print. Okay. So... Um, and who was the publisher? Uh, well, Jeffrey Bless. Jeffrey Bless, okay, the famous, uh, yeah. Um, I then presented them with the poems, and um, they were willing to publish them. Um, and so that was... That, that book came out. But then I then began... I realized that Lewis knew very little about his own writings... I mean, he didn't have copies of them. He had a copy of one of the Narnian stories. He had very few of his own works. One time, for instance, he said, what is your favorite poem? Can you quote your favorite poem? I said, I can. He said, well, do. So it was actually a poem from his book, uh, Pilgrim's Regress, which I like very much. Skazen's it's called. Anyway, I quoted the poem, and he said, Wow, that's so good. Could you write down a copy for me? And I said, But Jack, it's your poem. Is it? 
<laughs> That's not half bad, is it? <laughs> I'm confused because I was under the impression that Lewis surely had what we call a photographic memory. Well, he did, but except his own works. <laughs> <laughs> or you don't think he was putting you on? Now I'm oh, wondering no, I'm, I'm because sure he was he such a joker. No, no. no, amazing. Well, it's almost like he had some kind of extreme humility, yeah, yeah. which I always, when, when I encounter that, I always wonder if that is God's will or if yeah. one can push it too far yeah. and, and be so self-abasing that they're actually doing something wrong. Well, I think once he wrote something, he ceased to have much interest in it. He went on to something else, yeah. you know. But I, he, he kind of lied, you know. I mean, he, he really was thrilled to hear that poem. That, that's you know? amazing. Now, did he have any sense of... I mean, you said that he is keeping up this outrageous correspondence with dozens and scores of people around the world and spending great effort in that. Did he have any sense, do you think, that what he was writing would be collected at some point? You, uh, if, if uh, people listening don't know, you, uh, among all the things you've done, one of the greatest things you've done is publish three gigantic volumes of Lewis's collected letters, a gigantic editorial effort to do that. But Lewis is pouring so much of himself into letters to strangers, practically, do you suppose that he had any sense that they might be preserved? I think, yes. I saw one time a note he wrote when he was in the hospital to his brother. He was worried again, you know, um, about what his brother would live on when he died. And in that little short note, he said, what you might do to try to keep the wolf from the door is to collect and publish some of my letters spiritual well spiritual letters and so I knew that he was aware that you know they, were they weren't not junk you know, they were not junk they weren't know. text they were messages no, no. he didn't preserve letters to him and I don't he couldn't have told you where the letters were sent to well the, this so, is the question I want to ask just because we're not going to do any of this in order but since we're on this subject in collecting his letters um Surely there are many, many letters that he wrote which you wouldn't have been able to get back to publish. Do, do you have any... Well, as he spent two hours every morning writing letters, what I have published in something like um, 3,500 pages, uh, they can't represent all that he wrote. So... Um, you know, but the, that's the best I can do so far. Well, so far, yeah. So beginning <laughs> 1967, I began collecting his letters for the Bodleian Library. So at least I have the advantage of knowing who he, he many of the people he wrote to. So I wrote to them and asked for his letters. The Bodleian Library is not able to pay sums, you know, he'd sums like that. So uh, they have a number of people called the Friends of, of the Bodleian, of which I'm one, and we just collect for on behalf of the Bodleian Library. Yeah. So that's where most of the letters 
Oh, good, most of them are. Right. But then the good men in Wheaton College as well. But Wheaton and the Bodleian have an exchange program. They send copies of what they have, mm-hmm. and we send copies of what we have. You know? It's just extraordinary. Well, I, I just think that you know, anyone who loves Lewis, he's a never-ending fountain. No, you no, don't no, ever no. have to stop reading Lewis yes. uh, and reading those letters. Yes. I, I know that I haven't read all of them yet, yes. but I have them. You were talking about the job that was given to you, that yeah. he didn't care about his own writing. So you're, you're presented with, with what at that point? Your job well, is I, what? My job was to... Um, I wanted his books to stay in print. But I've, I, I believe, as if that publisher said, a new book helps to sell old books. Well, I began to go to the Bodleian Library and look through everything... I would take out, say, a journal like the, the, the Guardian, uh, this uh, church magazine, and start with page one. It would take me usually two weeks, just turning pages, see if I could find anything by C.S. Lewis. And I did that with the Church Times, page after page after page. And <laughs> I remember uh, one time I was seated across the seat from this tall priest from Canada and um, he could watch because he was very tall he could look down over the partition and see what I had and one of Lewis's friends had told me a young man that he was pretty sure he'd seen something by Lewis in something called men only (laughs) well I got it into my head that men only was about deep sea fishing and wrestling with bears and things. <laughs> so I ordered up, as I always did, something like, you know, from 1930 up to 63. So they had piles of these. I mean, they brought them in two or three trolleys and they put a stack of about 100 in front of me. Well, weren't about deep sea fishing. <laughs> Lord, no. Uh, and the priest was looking at me. And I was so embarrassed. They were pornography, if you haven't understood that yet. And anyway, I followed him out when he, he was just shaking his head all the time. And I followed him out and I said, Father, it's not what you think. What do you think I think? He said, I said, it's, it, I'm not reading pornography. I'm looking actually to see if there's an essay by C.S. Lewis. And you really expect to find him in there? And I said, well, somebody said they thought maybe there was. He said, I don't believe you. Anyway, I followed him down to St. Venice pleading with him. I said, just give me a chance. I'm really not what you think. He said, mm, mm, we'll see, we'll see, because he was allowed the next day. And anyway, he saw me as I, I went through until 1963, turning every page. I didn't find anything by C.S. <laughs> but anyway, during the, the um, that year, I found a lot, though. But so when you we, say found things, so f- found uh, essays or little things that oh, had I not been a, collected. Oh, many, many things, including his poems. You see, he, one of the things that he, he simply didn't know about how many poems he published and where they were. And they were mostly published in Punch magazine yeah. and other places. 
So I farm many, many poems, and that's what was published in you know, October of okay, 64. Okay, 64. So, so that was the book. So that really was your initial project, yes. mm-hmm. was to get out this new book yes. mm-hmm. uh, within a year of his death, and so you were looking for, for his poems. Yeah, now, definitely. that was selected poems or collected poems? What was that? It was just poems, it was called. It was selected, but they were just called poems. Okay, and so it wasn't definitive. It was no, just no, the, was, the best but, that you thought. No, no, no. But um, I like his poems very, very much. And at the same time, I had um, inherited from Warning a number of other manuscripts, such as um, many essays that he had read in Cambridge to various groups. And so I published a volume with Cambridge and then a, a copy with uh, Bless. But at that time, Bless soon went out of business and I had to deal with HarperCollins, or Collins as if, if they were called at that time. It's before Collins and Harper merged. Before they merged. And um, the, the two people who ran it were Sir, Sir William Collins and his wife, Lady Collins, Lady Collins. Lady Collins. I, I remember about her. her. I remember you telling me about her. Well, she was the one who published the paperbacks of Lewis's works uh-huh. called Blessed and Doom. And I had to go up and talk to her in London about this new book I had. In London, I had never met anybody that grand. As grand <laughs> so, as Lady um, Collins. Anyway, Lady Collins was <laughs> in, in an office. They took me up and opened the door, and I saw it once. All the furniture was covered in green velvet. There was a little fire in the grate, and Lady Collins was sitting there on that green velvet chair holding a chihuahua <laughs> and smoking. Who, who was not covered in green velvet. <laughs> no, no. Right, so. And she was smoking Sobrani's cigarette through a jade holder. <laughs> a jade holder. <laughs> I think this is the most romantic human being I have ever laid eyes on. And, um, and then tea was brought in and Georgian uh, silver. How did you know the silver was Georgian? Because I, I knew enough about silver. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think you still do. Um, actually, if she told me to jump through the window, I would have gladly done it. But I, I said, Lady Collins, you can have this new book on condition that you bring back two of the old books so they're out of print. And I thought this was very brave, and I thought she'd say, no, I'm not. But she said, all right, which one, which two do you want me to bring back? And I said, Pilgrim's Regress and The Abolition of Man. Which one would you like first? And I said, The Abolition of Man. She said, all right, you write the blurb for the back of it, and I'll, I'll bring it up. Oh, my God. Well, she was wonderful, wonderful. I, 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 I loved her very, very much. And, uh, but I just want to say, uh, and I don't care what you think, uh, how wonderful you are that you were there uh, with this um, eccentric woman and you had enough bravado uh, and confidence in what you were called to do to, to say to her that she must put out two new books. That's, those of us who love Lewis uh, must know that we have you to thank because I cannot imagine what might 
have happened. As, I hear, as I've heard you tell some of these stories before, it becomes eminently clear that, that it is not even close to inevitable that his works would have carried on. The, I mean, the abolition of man, which is so central to so many people's lives, it's a prophetic work, unfortunately, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> speaking about much that's happening today, and that's finally, m- many things that are finally bearing fruit today, many trends that Lewis had his finger on. Yeah. You know, the idea that you uh, were able in 1964 to get this woman to say she'll, she'll put yeah, that book out, that's not uh, insignificant. So I just want uh, to annotate your comments to say that, that that's, that's a big deal, that as a young man you were willing to, to, to sort of uh, put that out there and how wonderful that she had the wisdom to see that this was a, was a good idea. But that's, uh, I'm, I'm excited just to hear this. Well, thank you. I, um, it, sometimes it wasn't, you know, people, romantic people like Lady Collins. <laughs> but I remember Owen Barfield, he, he kept being amazed. He said, you... you you don't mind doing anything, do you? But it's your, you'll sacrifice anything for C.S. Lewis. But we had just received a contract for a book that I put together called God in the Dark. I given to uh, um, people, Erdman's. Now, who, did, did you come up with that title? Where does that title come from? Um, it came from one of Lewis's essays. Um, the people in the past they believed in God or the, the gods and they believed they were there, they were being judged. But for the modern man, the roles are reversed. God is in the dark and man is on the bench. Well, that's one of those British terms that most Americans have no idea what that means. I know, I wonder why they even chose it. God in the well. dark, it's, uh, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's just an old foreign term. Well, we got the contract for them. They were willing to take it. But they were giving Lewis, and this is what really hurt me, they were giving Lewis 10% royalty. That's what you start a young man with. You start with 10%. And so Owen Barfield says, well, they're starting him as though he's nobody. And so I struck through it with a big pen and put 15%. He said, you can't possibly get away with that, can you? I said, try it. Well, let's see. I did. <laughs> I'm surprised too, but anyway. Well, in New I, York, we no, call this chutzpah. No, no, yeah. uh, it's uh, terrific. No, no. Do they even have a word for this in England? What I do. Well, chutzpah. <laughs> but, but, what what, what yeah. would they call that? I, I think it's. I think that characteristic. It maybe it took an American no, no. to. Uh, I think to it be did. So brassy it, no, no, would be no. maybe yeah, the I English word. Brassy. A little brassy. I think, yeah, I was very brassy then. I'm not now. I've lost it somehow. I think you know. But I needed to be at that time. Yeah. And I, I thought of that argument with Lewis, which I obviously have won, would you say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. I think if there's so many things. I'm so glad we have um, a couple more days to continue our conversation, although I confess I hate to stop now just because it's, there's so much that I want to ask you um, about these manuscripts and about Warney's uh, bonfires where he would put the manuscripts on and rescuing manuscripts. And just there's just so 
much, but I guess we'll get to that tomorrow. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel, 11 a.m. here at St. Aldate's. Um, I want to thank you again for being part of this. And I do mean that if you had not consented to doing this, you know, we've been emailing over the year, we wouldn't have done any of this. I said, to me, this is, the, this is what must happen. The other stuff is ancillary. We've got wonderful uh, interviews. But this, I felt, must happen because, as I said, to me, it's, a, it's nothing less than an injustice that these story, stories haven't been told in a, in, a, in a more public way. I know that uh, many of them are out there. You've written things. You send me some things. But to hear them from you is significantly different. So thank you for being thank here. You. And we'll let you leave if you promise to return tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, thank I'm you. Afraid uh, not to. I think, yeah, no. There's a, we, we've only scratched no. the surface. That's what. So that's why I said we've got to do several of these. So, but in the interest of your time and energy, we'll do it in this fashion. So, another enthusiastic Socrates in the City Oxford round of applause for Walter Hooper. Thank you. Thank you.